Okay, it's obvious that this story was told by an eyewitness. Uh, the whole scene is filled with vivid details, the kind that only a participant would be able to recount. In verse 35, it says that this happened in the evening. Uh, in verse 36, it tells us that Jesus used the same boat that he'd been preaching from earlier. And in verse 36, it also tells us that other boats were out there with Jesus and the disciples on the lake. And that also in verse 38, Jesus slept on the cushion that rowers would normally sit on in the boat. These are all details. And because, of course, that Peter was likely Mark's source for this gospel, and since Peter was a boat owner and a fisherman, uh, it would really not be a stretch to think of him recounting all the details of this episode uh, to Mark. I think this whole beautiful moment made a powerful impression upon Peter and all of the disciples. Now, this episode is what you would call an identity account, uh, one where the disciples come to terms to a greater degree with Jesus's identity. Uh, in this story, they're going to gain a massive clue uh, that he is the God of glory, the Holy One, the creator, the sustainer of all flesh. And they're going to walk away from this episode amazed by Jesus. And personally, my hope is that the same majesty of Christ will jump off the page and into your heart today. You see, Jesus is more powerful and Jesus is more glorious than we often dream. And his work on the lake of Galilee almost 2,000 years ago was meant to open everyone's eyes to his transcendence. But there are dangers in looking at this particular episode. Uh, one danger is the danger of familiarity. You know, most of us know this story. We've read it so many times and heard, have heard it preached on so many times. It's well-known and sometimes well-worn. But a, another danger is the tendency for pastors and preachers to abuse this text. Uh, this is a story that many pastors and preachers use to make people think more about themselves rather than more about Jesus, more about their storms rather than more about Christ's power. In messages like these, God in Christ becomes a slave who is there to calm our troubled waters. And though there's a grain of truth in that teaching, uh, the passage before us is meant for so much more than that. This is not a man-centered, you-centered, anthropocentric message. This is a God-centered, Christ-centered, Christocentric passage. Now, I don't want you to be saddened by that premise, however. You see, the truth is that seeing the Christ-exalting nature of this passage will do way more for your soul than a trite or superficial feeling that Jesus can calm your storms. But without any understanding of how or when or why or even why not about him calming the storms. Instead, this passage 
can put steel in your spine because it will help you understand that if Jesus, the God-man and creator God is with you in, in your proverbial boat, then you can endure anything. Okay, so that's the way we're going to look at the passage today. There are many amazing or interesting elements to the story, but I'm gonna spend our time today by looking at three specific questions that are asked in the text. Each question developed the scene and each says something powerful about Jesus. Here's question number one. It's this, don't you care? Don't you care? You see, Jesus' disciples wondered if he cared about their situation. Let's read it again there in verse 35 to 37. It says, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Okay, here is the setting of the miracle once again. It was on the same day, like I mentioned earlier, that Jesus was preaching all the different parables that we've look, been looking at the last couple of weeks. And when Jesus invited his disciples to go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, he was likely inviting them to a private moment away from the multitudes. Okay, now, some topography that you should know about the Sea of Galilee is that it sits about 700 feet below sea level and is surrounded by various mountains and hills. Uh, one to the northeast is a mountain called Mount Hermon that ascends almost 10,000 feet, just above 9,000 feet above sea level. Because of that, sometimes violent winds descend from the mountains and warm air ascends from the lake. And because of that, from time to time, you get massive storms on the waters of the Sea of Galilee. These tempests or squalls, though infrequent, are forceful when they occur, especially for the small boats in Jesus's day. And one such great windstorm arose that night as Jesus and his disciples attempted to cross the Sea of Galilee. Waves were breaking into the boat, Mark says. The boat was filling with water, he reports. Now the story shows us how even though Jesus had invited his disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee, uh, they were not immune from storms. You know, in a sense, it was like Jesus invited them into a windstorm when he invited them to cross the sea that night. And we know that this is true. We know that we also are not immune from trials. You know, someday we confess when in glory we are going to live trial-free lives. But if we're honest, here on earth, we actually need trials. You see, during trials, we're driven to God. They serve as a chance for us to actually walk by faith. They reorder our priorities. They refine us and shape us. And they wake people up to their need for God. James says that they make us complete. Paul said in Romans that they produce perseverance and character and hope. And Peter said that they purify us. 
You see, during trials, we learn about ourselves and we learn about God. And this is what the disciples were in that boat as it filled with water. They were in a trial. But it says in verse 38, but he, Jesus, was asleep in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That's where that first question comes from. Do you care? You see, it appears that the disciples felt helpless in the face of this particular windstorm. And this is significant because many of the disciples were seasoned fishermen who had spent a vast bulk of their adult lives fishing on that very body of water. But they felt in that moment that they were outmatched. Uh, they believed that they were going to die. And so they came to Jesus, woke him and said, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, what made them ask this question of Jesus? What made them accuse Jesus of apathy about the situation that they found themselves in that night? Okay, it's very simple. He was asleep uh, on the cushion. In the stern, in the back of the boat, Jesus' sleep communicated to them that he did not care about what they were enduring that evening. Now, the truth is, is that Jesus' slumber did not actually mean that he didn't care. Uh, it was actually only a sign that he was exhausted, but it was not a sign of his indifference. You see, Jesus had been serving the masses all day. And for a long season before that day, and sleep had been hard to come by, it appears. He woke early in the morning to seek his father and minister to people deep into the evening. God had become flesh and dwelt among us. And in his humanity, Jesus was tired. He was pooped. So he went to the back of the boat and fell asleep, and even a raging storm could not awake him. He was that tired. Now, it's hard to say what they wanted Jesus to do when he awoke. I mean, the story shows us that they didn't expect that he could calm the wind and the wave. They didn't think that he could calm the storm. They're going to be shocked when he actually does that miracle. They didn't know that it was in his repertoire of, of miracles. They, they were surprised. But Matthew tells us that at least some of them said, Lord, save us. So it seems that though they didn't expect he could calm the storm, they wanted him to do something, at least act like he cared. Uh, and to do something, they knew he had to be awake, or at least that's what they thought. So they went and awoke Jesus. Okay, but isn't this so often the feeling that we have when we are going through trials. You know, we know a lot more than these disciples did. We know about the cross. We know Jesus' identity as the Son of God. We know he lives with us by his Spirit. Yet we still often react the exact same way as these disciples. Lord, don't you care about what I'm going through? Don't you see what's happening in my life? I'm perishing. You're asleep. Now, we know that Jesus did care. I mean, he cared immensely. In fact, his mere presence in the boat that day was evidence of his care. You see, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, that Jesus incarnated in the first place 
that he took on a body that would experience fatigue and fall asleep in the back of the boat in the first place. Something that he'd never felt in all of eternity past in his divinity. All of that was evidence of his care for them. Surely he did care, but their fear got the best of them and began to accuse Jesus. And if we're honest, this happens. You know, this, this wasn't their best moment. And when we behave similarly like they did, it's not our best moment either. But this happens, we have times where we wonder if he cares. Now, some believers act allergic to any fear or sorrow or worry or stress or anger. And what I mean by that is that when those feelings arise in many believers, they stuff those feelings deep down. Uh, they consider them to be contrary to the joy of the Lord. And so they put that smile back on and act as if nothing is wrong. Rather than process their feelings with God, as the entire book of Psalms would encourage them to do, they pretend that those feelings do not exist. And they feel shame for, for being so weak and having those feelings in the first place. But you know what Peter said? He said, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You know, the truth is that sometimes as we cast our anxieties on the Lord, it's an ugly affair. It's not all, always so neat and tidy. You know, like, oh, benevolent father, as I sought you this morn, I discovered a care in my soul, an anxious thought that I wanted to surrender unto thee. No, sometimes it's just an ugly cry. It's an accusation against God or a long, pained sigh of grief. But he does care for us. So we have to take those cares and cast them upon our Lord. Look, as, as a pastor teacher, I try very hard to live out the messages that I preach. But I'm embarrassed to say that I've lived out this particular message more times than I can count. You know, even this last week, I began to feel the waves fill my little Nate Holdridge boat. I, I began despairing. And I was frustrated about being required to stay home for so long, so many days, turning into weeks, turning into months. I was frustrated by the governing authorities and the decisions that were being made. I was frustrated by church leaders trying to turn this into a time for civil disobedience or acting all persecuted. I was frustrated by teaching to a camera week after week. I was frustrated by the complexities of ministry in the digital age. I was frustrated that every day just kind of blurs into the other and, and it's like, what day is this? I was just frustrated. And I began throwing a little pity party for myself in the midst of my anxieties. And to be honest, it really wasn't a little pity party. It was a big pity party. I had streamers, balloons, the works. We were, I, was, I was getting down in my pity party. And as I wrestled with this particular text, I saw myself so clearly. You know, they asked, do you not care that we are perishing? Such an accusatory and sarcastic question that they brought to Jesus. It was ugly. It was embarrassing. 
It's actually one of the reasons that I trust the Bible. You see, in their desire to tell the truth, the authors of the Bible made themselves look like morons sometimes. And through their transparency, I realized that I was asking the same lame question. And through it all, I sensed the voice of the Lord say to me, Nate, I do care. I see this situation. I'm in control. Trust me. So that's the first question. Do you care? Here's question number two. This one from Jesus. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? You see, Jesus wanted his disciples to trust him. So he asked that question. Why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? Let's read it together. It says in verse 39, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Okay, so they wake Jesus up and immediately he gets up and he calms the seas. Remember in previous episodes in Mark's gospel, how Jesus rebuked the demons? Where Well, here it says that he rebuked the wind, same word that he used for rebuking demons. Uh, he told the sea to be still. And miraculously, a great calm came upon the waters. It was an amazing moment. The Prince of Peace had done his thing. Now, remember, Jesus had just told a bunch of parables at the beginning of chapter 4, uh, which kind of focused on the power of his word. And now they had a living example of that power. He spoke, he commanded, and what he said came to pass right down to the ceasing of the wind and the stilling of the seas. In, a, in other words, if he willed something, if he said something, it occurred. Then Jesus turned to his men and questioned them. You know, he'd been teaching them privately. He'd been telling them the meaning of the parables and letting them in on the secret of the kingdom. But they still didn't have the faith that they needed. They were still afraid. Clearly, they didn't yet know who they were dealing with in Jesus. And it was really important that these men have their fears allayed and their faith strengthened by Jesus's presence and identity. You see, these were the guys who would eventually take the gospel to the nations. That was God's plan for their lives. And as they did that work, they would be opposed by their fellow countrymen in Israel. They would be opposed by pagan worship systems. And they would be opposed by the might of the Roman government. Uh, they would be arrested. They would be beaten. And they would be martyred for the sake of the gospel. And for this to occur, they needed a big view, the right view of Jesus. And they needed to trust him. So Jesus asked them the question, why are you so afraid? And then a follow-up question, have you still no faith? This was a teachable moment for Jesus with his disciples. You know, he loved them. He's parenting them right now. It's not a harsh rebuke, but a gentle one designed to get them to realize who he was and who they were when they were with him. I want you to remember something from verse 35. You could see it there in your Bibles. 
Jesus had invited them to go across to the other side. Matthew and Luke both record this detail. Jesus said, let's go across. John doesn't tell this particular story. Jesus invited his disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee, to go to the other side. Now, the first verse of chapter 5 says this, they came to the other side of the sea. In other words, Jesus invited them to go across to the other side, and go across they did. He didn't invite them to go drown on the Sea of Galilee or die out there on the lake's waters. No, Jesus' life was firmly aimed at the atonement he would accomplish for humanity when he died on a Roman cross. And the cross was foreordained. That was the way that Jesus had to die. It had even been predicted in the Old Testament. So Jesus could not die on those waters. He was invincible until his appointed hour on Mount Calvary. And they would also be invincible as they carried out God's will for their lives. You see, after Jesus rose from the dead, he left these men. And by his spirit, as I've already mentioned, they were strengthened to face far worse than a storm on the sea. But this word, this word, let's go across to the other side, has been a comfort to me as a pastor during this unique season that we are in in our world. You see, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And look, I know that individual churches and denominations, they often do actually wither and die. But usually they wither and die because they drift from the confession that caused Jesus to tell Peter in the first place about the church's invincibility. In other words, Peter had confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. He had a high view of Jesus. And that confession was the rock upon which Jesus would build his church. I believe there's ample evidence that churches and movements which hold a high view of God, a high view of Christ, and a high view of his word, we will get across to the other side of this whole thing. And just to update those of you who are praying for your home church, if it's Calvary Monterey, I just want to say to you, we are confident in our God. You know, he's provided for us, for one, well during this season, just as he has for decades now as a church. And he is bearing fruit in your lives during this time. He is using this for his purposes. You see, as a church family over the decades, we've endured all types of seasons with God. You know, right now, we're in a season where we have a building that we can call our own, even though we can't use it yet. But we've also gone through seasons where we've had to borrow movie theaters and other churches' buildings in order to meet. We've had seasons with large pastoral staffs and seasons with smaller ones. We've had times of robust provision, but also seasons of meager finances, We've had seasons where we've numerically increased and seasons where we've numerically decreased. We've had times of great fruitfulness under unto God and also times where God has pruned and purified us as a people. And through it all, 
Though we are far from perfect as a collection of believers, we have remained, as a church, orthodox in the faith, honoring towards God, loving the gospel, all while continuing to affirm the importance and inspiration of Scripture by reading it and studying it at our gatherings. And God has always gotten us across to the other side of whatever trial or whatever situation has come up. He's always been faithful. You know, I became the senior pastor of this church in 2008, right before the financial downturn that rocked our nation at that time. I was a young pastor, and as each individual sheep in this larger flock determined whether they could hear the voice of the ultimate shepherd, Jesus Christ, through me as I shared his word with the people, our church population went through a time of shifting. Uh, that's a nice way of saying that we shrunk for a little while. And so did our finances. But we just kept loving God. We just kept proclaiming Jesus. We just kept studying his word. And God got us through a time like that. And God got us across then, and he will get us across today. And I'm not just saying that he'll get us across financially either. That's the least of our concerns. That's not my point. What I mean is that I believe that he will get us through to greater fruit, to stronger impact, and to better forms of ministry. He is that good at what he does. Look, we have no guarantees regarding how long each of us will live, but God has a purpose for each one of our lives. He will get you across. He will not take you home to himself before your appointed hour. If he has work for you to accomplish, you will live. And once your work is done, he'll bring you home into his presence. Paul said in Philippians 1 verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's trust Jesus. All right, let's close by looking at our final and third question together. Who is this is the question. It's one the disciples asked. Who is this? You see, Jesus' disciples learned of his identity through this episode. It says in verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Remember, church, this isn't the first time the disciples have witnessed Jesus perform a miracle. You know, they've watched him cast out demons. They've watched him heal everything from fevers to paralysis. They've watched him cleanse people of leprosy. At this point, they were well accustomed to the miraculous power of Christ. Uh, we shouldn't imagine that the disciples somehow out there on the Sea of Galilee forgot that Jesus had miraculous power. No, they very much were conscious of his miraculous ability. But this miracle, it shook them. They asked, who then is this? Why did they ask the question like that? Why did this miracle so profoundly impact them? Well, in their view, this miracle was an altogether different miracle in a different 
category than anything else that Jesus had done up to this point. You see, these, these were Jewish men. They were steeped in Old Testament Jewish scriptures and traditions. And when they scanned the Old Testament, they saw that it was God who split the Red Sea. It was God who held back the waters at the Jordan River. And it was God who calmed the Mediterranean Sea once the prophet Jonah was cast overboard. In other words, to see the seas calmed, the waters manipulated, that was God stuff. You see, in Genesis 1, on six days of creation, God took chaos and made it into order. And Jesus, that night on the lake, did the same exact thing. There was chaos, and by his word, order was produced. And it shocked them. It scared them, thinking about who they were with in that moment. That's why they said, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? His miracle, in other words, was a revelation. They were starting to see the divinity of Christ. The sleeper in the stern of the boat was God in the flesh. Now, there's a passage in Psalm 107, and I'm going to conclude by reading it to you. I'll put it on the screen. You could turn there as well if you'd like in your Bibles. And the reason I want to read it to you is because of its strong parallel to the events here of Mark chapter 4. In Psalm 107, it is the Lord, God, who is doing the things that Jesus does in this episode that we've studied today. Read it. I want you, as you go through it, to consider this current modern time and how Jesus might be the one who by his power and might is with us in these storms. Psalm 107, verse 23 and following says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. Sound familiar? All the boats there on the Sea of Galilee. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. In other words, this storm that had come caused this kind of stress, much like we see with the disciples. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Sound familiar? It's exactly what Jesus did in this passage, something that the psalmist ascribes to God himself. You see, the disciples, just like the people of Psalm 107, had seen the deeds of the Lord. 
They had cried to the Lord when they were in their trouble. And they needed to thank the Lord for his steadfast love, his covenant commitment to his people. And just as the people of Psalm 107 and the disciples of Mark 4 needed to extol and praise the Lord, we should do the same. He cares for us. He's trustworthy. And he is the glorious creator God who will one day calm every storm and make all things new and bring us into the ultimate destination of his kingdom. I'll conclude today with three basic questions. They're the same questions that we looked at through the passage. Number one, ask the question, does he care? And of course, he most certainly does, but you must work through that within your own mind and heart. Number two, why are you so afraid? As we consider who our God is, let us face the day, though we have fears, with faith and trust in him. And number three, who then is this? Let's have a more magnified and glorious and high view of who is with us in life in Jesus Christ. He is our great advocate and he is worthy of our worship.